Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I'm joined by my partner in crime, Drew Meredith, and we're chatting to Catherine Lyle, who is an experienced venture capitalist and a partner at Seed Space Venture Capital. We ask questions among, what are the five essential questions that a VC would ask any founder before they invest? We talk about the market at large and how Seed Space sources deals and finds founders throughout Australia, and also why they focus on fintech startups above all else. This is a fantastic conversation and foray into venture capital in Australia with Catherine Lyle of Seedspace. Drew Meredith, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Thank you. We're talking to Catherine Lyle. How are you going? Very well, thanks. It's wonderful to have you on the program. First venture capitalist ever on the show. And a female. And a female. Bonus points. Um, Yeah, we've been doing this. I've been doing this for four or five years. Like a unicorn would be the appropriate. Unicorn. I feel very (laughs) honoured. Venture capital. It's taken this long to get down into private markets and then go right down the pointy end, but it's so much fun. So I don't know why it's taken us so long. So hopefully you can be a bit of a field guide for us today. We're recording here in Noosa. Drew, icebreaker, what do you reckon? I'll go for it. Have you ever owned Bitcoin? (laughs) Yes, I have. I owned one Bitcoin in 2016. I lived in London for 18 years and we were a bit of ahead of the curve versus Australia, I think, on looking at adopt, at these kind of crypto assets, as they call themselves. And I was getting very interested and curious about it because they co-opted a lot of our language of financial services, you know, currency, assets, etc. And at that point in time, for me, it looked very much like a big Ponzi scheme. But uh, some, <laughs> some, some banks, and, yeah. Yeah, some banks and, uh, were ahead of the curve there and were offering access to these, um, these currencies, if you like, uh, as, as were some of the money exchange businesses. So in London at that t- point in time, for a short while, you were able to go and purchase Bitcoin via an ATM machine because uh, it was very common there to be able to get euros, sterling and US dollars in those machines and swap them around as you travelled, especially around the train stations that travelled internationally. So, yeah, I went and bought a Bitcoin and um, some months later sold it back through the same system. I didn't lose any money. I didn't make any money. Um, but I do wish I'd held it for another five or six years. Have you always been an early adopter? I like to think so, yes. I've done a lot of startups within big institutions in financial markets. That's been my career. 
Do you remember? So this was 2012, wasn't it? 2016. Tw- oh, 2016, sorry. So do you remember what Bitcoin was at the time? I'm tr- not, to, not to rub it in. <laughs> oh, it was pretty low. It was around $200. Yeah. So it was in, we, I did it in sterling, though, at the time. It was 120 pounds or something. I can't remember, to be fair. Wow, okay. It was a very small thing at that time because lots yeah. of other big stuff was happening in markets. We were out of the GFC, you know, sort of 2014. Markets were starting to recover. There was a lot going on in Taper commodity tantrum. markets. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, uh, it, was a, it was just one of those curious things and, and all that stuff around cryptos and DeFi was happening on the fringes of financial services. So because of, the, of my role in markets and in markets infrastructure and bringing new products to market, we always stayed really close to anything new coming through, whether it, be, it, was, whether it was carbon credits or biofuels, which were new products that came to market um, several, several years before that, or indeed these sort, of, these sort of currencies. But in the end, like most exchanges, we started looking at the underlying tech and what that could do to do different things within markets. And you're in venture capital at the moment. Has your history always been in... In that part or in financial services or? Yeah. No, capital markets. So yeah. I, I started out, my first day on the futures trading floor was Monday the 19th of October 1987. So mm. I came straight out of uni and uh, it was Massive crash. crash. Not that I knew that. It was really good. It was just incredible. I had no idea what everyone was doing and I was thrown in the deep end um, and in fact had to take a bank bill line for a client because the company that I was starting with was so busy um, and was just told in no uncertain terms, um, to not make a mistake. Mm. Um, and I was writing out orders in longhand and you had to timestamp things and it was it was really intense but I was kind of hooked So I was only going to do it for five months. I was going into foreign affairs. That's what I've been accepted into after being an ANU. So after that I've deferred a year and things just got more and more interesting, more asset classes. We were doing trading internationally, um, especially with commodities like gold and silver and, and grains and cotton. Uh, and there was just so much to learn. So I never ever went back to foreign affairs. I ended up sticking with derivatives markets. How did you end up in venture capital then? Yeah, so that's a good question. <laughs> so one of the things about derivatives, so we've always been highly regulated and always had a lot of technology involved in those markets. So even though we're open outcry floors, there was loads of screens around taking prices, collecting data, doing charting for us, taking prices from international markets and showing them to us on the screens. So, so it's not all post-it notes all the time. The trading in the pit was on chits, yeah. chits, trading chits, um, which were in triplicate. And you had a pink one and a yellow one for buy and sell. And then the white one that went to the exchange and people keyed in all that stuff upstairs. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, you traded between certain hours of the day and you had to balance the books at the end of the day. It was um, on busy days that could take hours sometimes. Yeah. Um, everything recorded so you could go and check who had done what. Um, but with the technology, um, Electronic trading was really early in Australia, so stock market and the futures markets had screens overnight. And the ASX was the first sort of G20 stock market to go wholly electronic in 1989. And the futures market offered 24, you know, close to 24-hour trading from the early 90s. So we, you know, even running the bank business I did for futures, we had a London shift and a US shift. We we had teams overnight. We were trading on our own markets, which were open for some of that time. And as technology got better and faster and and could do more. We opened for longer and longer hours for our own markets and those were aligned with international. So always had technology in it. But one of the things I always realised, it was very hard to, 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 to get access as an investor to this tech until something listed probably. Um, so we spent a lot of time and effort supporting this tech, honing it, 
um, rolling and allowing them to roll out to more banks and other brokers and making them successful. But those of us that, that were there doing that never had any access to it. So I was in London for 18 years, building several pieces of market infrastructure for entities like NASDAQ and banks and London Stock Exchange, etc. And I ran the Chicago Board of Trade and CME Group for five years for EMEA and Asia out of there at a really key growth time for derivatives globally. Uh, and all that was about high-frequency trading, um, algorithmic trading, auto-clearance auto settlement. We've been T, T plus zero forever in those mm. markets across every asset class, every currency and every regulatory jurisdiction. So you can imagine how complex some of that tech is behind the scenes for the exchanges. So always been involved in tech and then... After the GFC in the UK, it was pretty punitive for markets over there. Australia wasn't really affected the way we were in the UK. And mm -hmm. we had, you know, there was a three-week period in the city where just UBS alone was making 10,000 people a day redundant for three weeks. So you can imagine what it was like. It was just, it felt like the world was ending. I kept some of the headlines from those days. It was pretty, pretty terrible. And the government came in and provided a lot of support um, for innovation because they saw that as a way for the UK to, to kind of find a way out of um, everything that happened with GFC. And they put a lot of funding and a lot of resources and gave a lot of access to, like David Cameron had his own personal fintech advisors that advised him, you know, around the table nearly every week. And through those programs, there was a lot of tax support for investment early stage. So some um, three friends and I decided to launch an early stage VC fund that invested only in capital markets fintech. So really, really niche. You would yeah. never find something like that here because mm. we are a fair way behind, but it was a big market there. Yeah, so we launched it um, with the naivety of people who've never run a fund before. <laughs> <laughs> off we went. Uh, and, we, you know, we've done pretty well. We've, we've, we've just closing down that fund now because obviously I'm back here in Australia and another one of my colleagues is retired, semi-retired to Barbados of all places. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, so we, we kind of, we did, we got about a 45% uh, hit rate on positives out of the fund. Um, we had a lot of regulatory technology in that fund. So MIFID two, EMEA, Barbar three, all those things in Europe forced banks and large financial institutions to do better What's with a normal compliance, hit rate? with surveillance, with, sorry? What's a normal hit rate, yeah. like 10%? Historically, everyone says 10%. Um, I think, especially putting my seed space, venture capital hat on now, all of us have got really deep experience in financial services and, and we've got really amazing networks. So we we believe we can beat that benchmark and certainly at the moment with our numbers, we're definitely doing that. Sorry, just to, con just to follow up here, um, excuse my... No, don't ask me my hit rate. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for another podcast. Um, so... When you say 45% is your hit rate, what's a hit basically and what's not? Oh, so you, so a successful exit. So you make more than you invested in okay, the entity yeah. so like within a certain time frame. Yeah. So in the UK, you've got three years. After three years, you can write the entire investment off. It's pretty incredible. Oh. Um, well, not, I shouldn't say that. Not the entire investment. If it's a, a, seed, a seed enterprise investment scheme, you can write between 50 and 70% of the investment off. So it's pretty significant yeah. tax write-off. So that's why the angel ecosystem over there is so strong because there's really significant mm. incentives for people to invest. We don't have that here. It's between 10 and 10% if you're an individual or 20% if you come into a ESV seal fund like ours. Mm. So tell us a little bit about seed space. Um, what is it today... Um, what are you focused on? What does an average day look like? Still mm. fintech. 
Absolutely fintech. So we so we're a very early seed stage investor. So we would be the first institutional investment after friends and family when you first set up a do a startup. Uh, we're only doing fintech because all of us have really strong financial services skill sets and experience. That's where our networks are, and we want to be able to weigh in with that experience and those networks to really support the companies we invest in. So we've only been going a couple of years. There's not a there's not I don't think there's anyone doing exactly what we're doing, actually. We're quite niche, um, but it's a really big silo to be in. Yeah, mm. There's a lot of opportunity here in Australia. Um, we lag our peers overseas probably by four or five years as far as the development and evolution of our fintech ecosystem, but we're catching up really quickly. We've got some really incredible companies. So day for us for Seedspace, we... We probably see around 600, we've got a really strong pipeline of companies that come through to us through partners. We're starting to get a good name um, as a VC fund in fintech and um, the way we support. So we probably see about 600 companies a year across the board um, and we probably get into DD for around 200 and then we'll take around 20 on average through to Invesco and, and, a, and a yes. So we've got 14 investments in the fund right now, nearly 15, one coming up. And we're in a, doing our final cap raise right now with the uh, Kingsgate team um, to do the final tranche of investment, which will be another $30 million into the fund, and then that's that fund closed. So we'll, we'll deploy that both in new investments but also following on in those investments that are doing well already. Um, we'll, we'll come in in some of those latest rounds, that, um, you know, from seed to late seed, then up to Series A. And what are those networks like the most important part? They're really important, right? And that's one of the that's why who you have around the table is really important. So we do a lot with the ecosystem. I sit on the board of FinTech Australia, for instance, which is the peak industry body for FinTech, where we we support, we sponsor yeah. pretty much everything in the industry. We have proudly sponsored the female FinTech leader of the year for the last five years at the Finney's Awards. Um, so we, we really try to be a good citizen and a supportive part of the ecosystem. So companies got, seek you out. Yeah. as well as the other way, yeah. They do, and we've got a nice balance of gender and skill sets and experience um, on, on the, around the table. How about um, incubators, accelerators, innovation hubs, etc.? How do they play a role in sourcing um, opportunities? Yeah, they are important. So in the UK or Singapore or the US, for instance, those are very tried and true paths. So every single financial institution just about has some sort of incubation or acceleration program as do all the big advisory firms, like I think Accenture's and everyone in the world, they, they've got huge accelerator programs in the UK and Europe and, and the US. We haven't got that depth and breadth here. Um, so it is something that we're missing. And there hasn't been the incentives, honestly, for those com companies to do that in the depth that they do overseas. Mm. In fact, some, in some of them, they don't have anything like that here at all, which is a surprise. Our big four banks all do, as do some of the second tier banks, which is good. And they're doing those through the lens of things that they want to build out and kind of own, if you like, going forward. So whether that be to do with mortgages and property and money or platforms for managing your wealth, um, that's their lens. So it's not very broad. And I think also the other challenge with us is, as far as I'm aware, we're the only G20 nation whose sovereign wealth fund doesn't allocate to our early stage ecosystem. So... Mm. The Future Fund doesn't have a mandate to do it, unfortunately. And I think that's something we could rectify very simply at a government level that would absolutely transform our early stage ecosystem. So they do allocate to funds. There's 14 funds they allocate to. None of them are Australian. They're all yeah. offshore. And they allocate to early stage, but not in Australia, only in offshore. And they're doing well. 
it's absolutely the yeah. right thing to do. Those investments are doing well. So therefore, could it not also be true, because we've got a lot of smart people here, that um, there could be the same opportunity in the Australian market. So we, we talk about this every chance we get. Mm. So we really hope to see the future fund being um, opened up and given a mandate to actually invest in our own ecosystem as well. Mm. There's plenty there's plenty of funds like us around now that have different niches and are starting to build up good track records that you could, you know, you could trust to take on some of that allocation and do good things with it. Do you think do you see the um, the venture space here in Australia? Do you think it is going to get more fruitful over the next five or so years? Yeah, for sure. There's no doubt about it. We we we're at an early stage for VC. Um, in the last year or so, we've started to see some of the uh, VCs that were around early days that I would say were more Series A and beyond investors. Some of them start up funds to go seed. Even though that's happening, we still aren't seeing them very prevalent right at the seed stage where we are. Um, we need to see more funding coming there. We're also starting to see some of those larger ones start to behave more like a PE firm. And, and while that's good, it, it leaves a bit of a gap in the market. So I would love to see more funds flowing to VC and more VC type structures um, being, being established here in Australia. Drew, question for you. You know, your clients, are they open to VC? I mean, a lot of them are retirees. Do, like, is that something that you would consider for them? Or I think a lot of them are actually get involved in the angel side, as yes. in go to pitch nights and invest directly into businesses because a lot of them are successful business owners themselves and they feel like they can add, add value, but there's not a lot of structure. Um, I think similar definitely has a role to play. And obviously retiree clients, you need some sort of diversified. And mm. the challenge we've always had is the vintages. You know, if you get your current clients into the current vintage, then you have to, you kind of want vintage diversification, um, yep. which we've seen as, as a struggle. But I think it, it makes sense. You know, the, the stats are simple. It's like is it 15, 20 times more companies are staying private than public um, and more sectors of the economy are, are available there. So mm. yeah. It's absolutely true. You've got a shrinking pool of listed assets to invest in and loads more money trying to, yep. to go into those things. And, and if you, you know, if you, so we're in private markets unlisted. Um, one of the things, I guess, the criticisms or the challenges people look to overcome in making those decisions to invest is they see transparency mm -hmm. of those entities the DD process, are they as robust as you would have for a listed entity? Um, how do you understand price and valuation? And then liquidity out the other side. Like if I want to exit, how do I do that? And these things are all being addressed right now with technology. We've got a company in our portfolio even that is a, it's a digital share registry based on blockchain that's going to start enabling exchange of value in unlisted markets. You know, So mm. it's got all the investors on there because they're already investors on a lot of the private companies, it's got all the companies, you can raise capital on it. So imagine being able to exchange that value if you want to get out of that as an individual, yeah. but also for funds, right? It helps you manage and tweak your portfolio. So I think you're right, there is more angel investor ha investments happening. Um, in Australia, my, in my experience coming back from the UK, it was a lot of small groups coalescing around someone they trusted and it might be all in med tech or all in ed tech yeah. or all in something that someone knew a lot about. Mm. Um, so I didn't see a lot of diversification. I also saw um, early days that our companies didn't know how to pitch for money. Like it was a lot of educational pitches, long-winded. So at Seedspace, we've got a little not-for-profit arm called Seed Money that we've set up to really help professionalise that pitch <laughs> for yeah. companies so that, that when they get there, they've got all the, they know what they've got to answer. They know how to answer it crisply. Um, they can get and do that elevator pitch. They can do the five-minute pitch. And 
you know, we're definitely going to we keep profiling those companies wherever we can. We've got so that coming tonight too, don't we? We do. Yeah. We've got three coming later on today. Fun. Yeah, great. So it's called it's called seed money. Seed money is our not-for-profit arm, yeah, that's yeah. where we do that. It's kind of, it's one way we can give back to the ecosystem by helping it grow and evolve and professionalise. And, and we support, again, we'll sponsor and support. We've done events for, at Intersect for Fintech Australia, we run our own pitch events. Um, and it also helps put a lens on fintech. It supports education from an investor perspective. We try and get as many investors in the room as possible, both pro, you know both individuals that are professionals, but also family offices and VCs who are often educating themselves about fintech and the use of AI, machine learning, robotic processing, platforms, you know, blockchain, whatever it might be, and often only have kind of headline understanding of things and, and, and often a negative idea about cryptos and things like that, which, which is not what this technology is all about. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, it's a very important part of educating um, investors too. And the, so these are run, these events that you would work on, are they... Based in Melbourne, Sydney, yep. Brisbane, yep. yeah, all around. We do them all around, yeah. Yeah, great. Okay, wonderful. Um, I've got one. I've got the tough one. Okay, you go. Tough one. Is the outlook for VC still positive? Yes. Short answer to that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Do you know, we're seeing, so in Australia particularly, it was a pretty thin spread in the market. Like if you go overseas, VC is deep. There's yeah. a, you know, you can be very niche and you'll see several in the niche. You, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to pitch. Here in Australia, it's, a, it's an evolving ecosystem. Yeah. And certainly at that very early stage, still a long way to go. Um, so that's an opportunity, right, for us yeah. here in Australia. And we're starting to get international money flowing in. We're starting to get more focus with our domestic funds to put money into um, early stage or unlisted. And so a VC, a fund to fund structure, for instance, is often a really good way to do that because it gives diversification. Uh, you know, back to your angel mm. investors and those that have retired, you know, you don't want to end up siloed all in one thing necessarily, even though you might like it. You want to have some diversification even in the silo perhaps. So funds are a really great way to do that. So I, I think VC is on the up and up. We're a long mm. way from over. Yeah, I think that's true too, right? Like there a lot of, in particular, our listeners who are, who are business people or, you know, have been investing for a very long time, they've probably had this opportunity in angel a few times. They thought, well, I can just write a, check you know I can go down and one of these incubators and see what I can do and whatever but being in the fund you get that diversification you also get the deal flow that you're the you get the you're the beneficiary of right totally so rather than doing four $25,000 investments because you like something and that's that could work out really well for you but if you come into a fund like ours that hundred grand would be diversified across 14 20 yeah 30 investments and it just it you know, it's like all funds, right? 90% of the revenues, profits come from around 25% of the investments. We're probably, that's the global benchmark. We're, we're looking to try and exceed that mm-hmm. benchmark, um, obviously. Uh, and we're, we know we're, we're, we're doing pretty well right now. We're pretty happy with where we are. But I think that's the difference. You know, you'll get that diversification without trying too hard. You've just got to find the funds and the niches that suit the, um, your focus. Mm. That's segue into the next question, probably too, isn't it? What are the what are the five questions? Even yeah. if you're it's looking at it as an angel investor or yourself as a investee company, yep. what are the five? Could be three, it could be five questions. Yeah, whatever questions <laughs> you would have, the most important ones. So we always have a list of questions, but I can distill it to sort of five key areas, and there'll be things that flow out of it, right? Sure. Yeah. So the first thing is, who are the founders? What's their skill set? What's their experience? Are they subject matter experts? 
So they might have a great idea um, and they're the tech side to solve it. So have they surrounded themselves with the subject matter experts in that you know, idea or have they got the idea and they've surrounded themselves with good tech? So when it gets down to it at this really early stage, you're investing in the people. And that's who, that's mm. the most DD we do around the people, how they interact as a team and things like that. We also, you know, and understanding their roles and responsibilities if there's co-founders. So that's got to be really clear. Who's in charge of what? Who's accountable for what? Can't just have like co-CEOs and then it's all a bit vague around that because that always blows up. So we do a lot of DD and question hard about how they, how they work, how they operate, what they know. The second thing is, is it solving a real problem? Is there a pain point that's being solved? There's a lot of problems that want solving out there, but that, 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 that there's a lot of problems out there, but not all of them want solving. Yeah. You, you could probably think of lots of things where you go, gosh, I wish we could improve that. But actually inertia or oligopolies and monopolies own the processes, so it's not going to change because you know, they don't want to disrupt their, mm. their fee flow and things like that. So what's the problem and can it be solved? Um, is there innovative technology being used at all? Yeah. Um, or is it potentially going to be used and is it going to be difficult to replicate the model? It's not just copying something or something right. similar. Yeah. yeah, so you want to be able to hold the, the next wave coming through at bay enough yeah. that you've got that traction. Is it scalable? Like, is it not just an Aussie thing? Can we take it overseas? Is the tech scalable? Is the product scalable? Is the revenue model scalable? Mm. And then the last one, which a lot of firms have only just started to ask more is um, we talk a lot about culture and diversity and the strategy for ensuring that that grows in a healthy way in companies that start up because often we'll get a small group or a team and they're generally nearly all male of a certain age and often out of financial services so we know from experience and we know from the data out there that it's really important to have diverse teams because that, that accretes directly to your P and your P&L right they're always more successful 10, 12, 16% better returns for those with diverse teams. So we have those hard conversations early because quite often haven't really ever thought about it. Mm. <laughs> Not because they're ill-intentioned, they're just focusing on trying to get this startup going. So it's yeah. really important to have those conversations early too. Mm. Have you read the book Zero to One? Yeah. Yeah, I finished reading that recently. Uh, there was that, that whole competition's the enemy of capitalism, is it? which is what you're talking about, yeah. find a niche, yeah. win the niche, yeah. don't try and Don't beat. try and own everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if um, you kind of answered this throughout the conversation, Kathy, but what are some things that maybe have changed in the way you think about investing since you've been doing this? In particular, has there been anything that's changed your mind or your preconceptions about way VC should be done? Yeah, I think technology is changing the way we're doing everything. Mm. Um, it's making access to information and data less asymmetric. Um, the average person can get data I could not get as a trader 30 years ago on the floor, mm. um, even as a professional paying huge fees per month to data vendors. So we've got access to a load more data um, and education options. So I think technology has been a real game changer um, and that subject matter expertise that used to sit inside big financial institutions is now available outside of that. And we've. I think Australia was one of the first to really see that because of the way we opened up the financial advisory structures and with the super funds, et cetera. That, that's actually ahead of the UK, for instance, um, which I think is a really, really big thing. Um, and then the types of companies that have been able to flourish either through the university system or through some of the tech hubs in the different states, 
it means we've just got diversification, diversification, diversification. It's, 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 it's really incredible. You can literally find something in every niche here in Australia. Are we as deep as some offshore? No, but we are absolutely dollar for dollar as good as offshore, if not better. Some of our startups are incredible and are doing really well overseas. And then I think the last one is that whole private versus listed paradigm. And, you know, we touched on this on the transparency and being able to do good, do good DD and be able to get liquidity points and valuations. That's all opened up now. So mm. it's really changing the risk reward ratio between listed and unlisted, which we need to have see happen. And I think that all plays into a stronger VC market going forward. It, it makes it an essential part of the investment paradigm. Otherwise, we've got a big gap. Mm. That's really important. And I see that, I feel like that's like the frontier, right, for a lot of yeah. these markets is bring like shining a light on the private markets is something that's, I feel like, most philosophical is going to be solved over yeah. the next 10 years. Yeah. If and not that's, five. Yeah. And um, I think that's exciting. It's a really exciting place to be, yeah. honestly. And, and it's been interesting sitting in the room here today because I've not been to an Inside Network conference before. The quality of the presenters and the lens they're coming at at markets, you know, it, it is fantastic, right? I, I mm. haven't seen such a short, sharp collection of really high-quality speakers around some really hot topics that are happening. And not just and product, which is yes. a challenge, always a challenge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've mm. learned a lot in the room today. I can see lots of other people around have too. And it's this thinking strategically and looking forward, and I think that's really important. Cathy, mm. if people want to uh, hear more from you or anyone on the team, where would they go to, to get in touch? So our website's the first, first space, seedspace.vc. Mm -hmm. Uh, for anyone who's a founder who's looking for early stage investment in the fintech space, please use the email structure there and you can email your deck. We pick that stuff up every week. Uh, we have an investment committee meeting every single week. Uh, we do reply. <laughs> <laughs> it took us a little while in the first year because we we're still getting all our admin going, but that's working really smoothly now. Um, we're very easy to get in touch with. And then on the other side, you can just, all our phone numbers are on there. Hmm. I'm on LinkedIn everywhere. You, it's very easy to get in touch with us. So please do. We, you know, we're, we're very welcoming for new limited partners, so individuals who want to come in. And, you know, right now, as I said, we're doing the cap raise with Kingsgate and talking to a lot of um, funds, funds of funds and family offices. So we, we're very hopeful for the future of uh, early stage VC in Australia. Mm. Well, Catherine Lyle, thank you for taking some time and being our field guide for <laughs> venture capital in Australia. First on the show, you did a great job. So thanks, thank for, you. thanks for joining Drew and I. Very welcome, mate. Open the floodgates for VC going <laughs> forward. I appreciate hoping. your time. Yeah, thanks, cheers. guys. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. 
simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.